You're listening to Comedy Central. February 5th, 2020. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. tuning in. Thank you for coming out. Thank you so much for being here. Take a seat, everybody. Let's do this thing. I'm Trevor Noah. Our guest tonight created the landmark 1619 project about slavery in America for the New York Times. Nicole Hannah-Jones is joining us, everybody. Also, on tonight's episode, Roy Wood Jr. kicks off Black History Month. It turns out traffic is all in your mind. And Nancy Pelosi tears Trump a new one. So let's catch up on today's headlines. Let's kick it off with the Democratic primary. What was meant to be a one-day event in Iowa has turned into a four-day shit show of confusion. (laughs) Only about three-quarters of the ballots are in. So we still don't know who officially won. But as it stands, it's a close race between Bernie Sanders, the world's youngest old man, and (laughs) Pete Buttigieg, the world's oldest young man. (laughs) But regardless of how it ends, no one is around to give a victory speech because the candidates have already moved on. Today, all of the top candidates are in New Hampshire ahead of the primary next week. And as you can see right there on your screen, they're holding events all around the state right now. For some reason in Iowa, they're having a little bit of trouble counting votes. (laughs) But I am confident that here in New Hampshire, I know they'd be able to count your votes on election night. And this is what I love about Bernie Sanders. He does not give a damn. Because he spent a year sucking up to Iowa, and then five minutes after he's left, he's already roasting their ass. Yeah, he's just like, I want to talk about the 99% of people in Iowa who have no idea what the f*** they're doing. (laughs) I hope Bernie does this for every state. You know, as soon as he's on to the next primary, he's in Nevada next week, like, great to be out of New Hampshire, or as I call it, dirty Massachusetts. (laughs) But I will say this. I know there's been a lot of trouble, but I think Democrats should consider themselves lucky that they get to work out all of the voting kinks in these super white states like Iowa and New Hampshire. Because this shit wouldn't fly when they're in South Carolina. Yeah, you try and tell an old black woman her vote isn't going through because of a broken app. She'd be like, oh, your app is broken? That's funny, because your ass about to be broken too. Oh, and, and speaking of technology gone wrong, Ever since traffic apps like Waze came along, people have complained that their neighborhoods are packed with cars trying to find the quickest route. Well, now one artist in Berlin might have found a solution. An artist in Germany has found a way to create fake traffic jams on Google Maps. He pulled around 99 (laughs) smartphones he got and a little red wagon. Look at that. And he pulled them up and down an empty street outside Google's Berlin headquarters. And it took about an hour, but eventually the Google Maps app thought that big buses were outside moving very, very slowly. And they put a little red line on there that said, look out, there's a traffic problem. Wow, that is genius. A German artist figured out that if you walk down the street with a bunch of phones, Google thinks there's a giant traffic jam on the block. Which was a slick move by him, but his Verizon bill is gonna bankrupt him, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Seriously, 99 phones is a lot of phones, even if it is for an art project. It almost makes me think 
that this is just a guy who had to come up with an excuse after his girlfriend busted him for having a bunch of side chick burner phones. <laughs> and she was like, so many phones. He's like, no, no, baby, it's for an art project. You see, I, I put them in my sex wagon, I mean wheelbarrow, then I, I make traffic. Yeah, but this just goes to show that you can't always trust these apps. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been disappointed that when my Uber arrived, it wasn't spinning uncontrollably. It's never accurate. <laughs> now, a lot of people, a lot of people were pissed off at this guy for disrupting traffic, but personally, I support this artist. Because if there's one thing I've learned from history, it's that when a German is trying to become an artist, you help them become an artist <laughs> before they become something else. So yeah, to that German artist, I say, Deine Kunst ist wunderbar. <laughs> Arbeite niemals in der Politik, danke. <laughs> All right, moving on to health news. Remember how in school, you had to do that fitness test in PE, where they made you do push-ups while everyone watched? It was a nightmare, right? Well, in California, that nightmare might finally end. Governor Gavin Newsom wants to halt mandatory physical fitness tests for California students because kids are getting bullied over them. The tests are required for fifth, seventh, and ninth graders. They measure everything from strength to aerobic capacity. Critics say the tests contribute to body shaming and other types of bullying. Yes, California's governor wants to suspend gym class fitness tests in order to curb bullying. Because we all know bullies can't body shame you without the metrics, you know? <laughs> It's such a weird logic. It's like, what, the bullies are just gonna be there like, oh man, I wanna give you a wedgie so bad, but I just don't have the data, man. <laughs> but I, I, I do like where the governor is coming from. You know, kids in California shouldn't be body shamed at school. That should only happen when they try break into Hollywood. That's when it counts. <laughs> and I do think there are better ways to get kids into being physically fit. Like for instance, in Africa, what we do is we have these things called lions. <laughs> and they're a very effective motivational tool. All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. <laughs> Impeachment. It's democracy's version of sending back a meal. And today, we reached the series finale of this president's first impeachment. So, let's check in on the latest developments in another installment of The Magical Wonderful Road to Impeachment. It's probably presidential harassment. Today was the final day in the impeachment trial of Donald Jambalaya Trump. <laughs> and no big surprise, he was acquitted by the Republican-run Senate, which was never in doubt. Don't boo, vote. <laughs> See, impeachment was, it was known. Like, everyone knew where this was going. This, this was like a movie where you can guess what was gonna happen without even watching it. You know, like Titanic. Okay, it's a ship that's gonna sink. Or Sophie's Choice. Some lady has to decide which dude she's gonna bone. I get it, I get it. So with the outcome, never in doubt, the only real drama today was whether any Republicans would dare vote against Donald Trump. And it turns out, there was one man with binders full of courage. Republican Senator Mitt Romney emotionally announced on the Senate floor that he will break ranks and vote to convict and remove President Trump. The president asked a foreign government to investigate his political rival. The president's purpose was personal and political. Accordingly, the president is guilty of an appalling abuse of public trust. With my vote, I will tell my children and their children that I did my duty to the best of my ability. 
believing that my country expected it of me. That is shocking. That is shocking. Who would have thought that the most badass Republican in the Senate would end up being a Mormon dude named Mitts? <laughs> and I gotta say, Mitts, you proved everyone wrong. The haters said you were as radical as a glass of skim milk, but they were wrong, Mitt. You're whole milk, my man. That's right, whole milk, fam. And by the way, I like how Mitt said that he voted this way so that he could tell his children he did the right thing. Cause that's such a white people thing to say, right? <laughs> no, white people love explaining themselves to their children. I couldn't look my son in the eye if I didn't do the right thing. Black parents don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> black parents are just like, boy, you better not look me in the eye. I made you, I'm gonna do whatever I'm gonna do. <laughs> now, other than Romney, Another Republican senator who was considered on the fence was also uh, about Trump was Susan Collins of Maine, all right? But she decided that we don't need to throw Trump out because she thinks he's already been scared straight. There are some senators who could have crossed party lines. Senator Susan Collins will not be one of them. I'm voting to acquit. I believe that the president has learned from this case. What do you believe the president has learned? The president has been impeached. That's a pretty big lesson. However, during a TV anchor's lunch at the White House yesterday, Trump responded to questions about Collins' comments, saying he had done nothing wrong and that his conversation with Ukraine's president, quote, was a perfect call. Man, Donald Trump would be the hardest person to defend in courts. He'd be like, your honor, my client has learned his lesson. No, I haven't. <laughs> His days of selling drugs are over. Who wants cocaine? <laughs> because clearly Trump hasn't learned a lesson. If anything, he's learned that he can do whatever he wants and Republicans will let him get away with it. But first, they're gonna shake their heads. <laughs> so basically, thanks to Senate Republicans, Trump is now free. He can just run through laws like he's got that Super Mario invisibility star. That's what he can do. Yeah, he's invincible. Except Trump is more powerful than Mario because in this case, the turtles are on his side. Basically, <laughs> basically, President Trump is off the hook. He's completely off the hook. And you know what that means? He's gonna let loose tonight, man. He's gonna eat 50 burgers, bang a porn star, and then he's gonna do something crazy. And while Trump, and while Trump is doing that joker dance down the courthouse steps, <laughs> the rest of the country is still focused on the fallout from Trump's State of the Union speech last night. And, and, and it's not so much what was in his speech, but the fallout has been about what Speaker Nancy Pelosi did to the speech, and Republicans aren't happy. A bitter, bitter Nancy Pelosi ripping up the president's State of the Union speech. One of the most classless things ever done in the history of the State of the Union. I have never seen anybody act so childish in my life. A spoiled petulant child, essentially picking her nose in front of the American people. It's not just the numbers you're ripping up. Those are people. Nancy Pelosi shredding the memory of Kayla Mueller, shredding Tuskegee, 100-year-old Tuskegee Airmen, shredding a little two-year-old. That's Pelosi ripping up the stories of these Americans. Yeah. <laughs> that is so true, my friends. When Nancy Pelosi tore up a copy of Trump's speech. She wasn't just ripping up a speech, she was ripping up the memory of the people in that speech. Those people are gone now. <laughs> That's how paper works. 
Like one time at dinner, the waiter ripped up my receipt and then I was hungry again. <laughs> now look, man, you can argue that Nancy was right or wrong <laughs> to tear up Trump's speech, but, but I'm sorry, guys. These people, these people, the people that support Trump have no business complaining about breaches of decorum, all right? Their dude is literally the king of that shit. He puts the dick <laughs> in decorum. I'm coming acting like you now, oh, I can't believe he did this. Cause it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny though, that Republicans were so upset with Nancy's lack of decorum, especially because Trump used the very same speech to bestow America's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, on conservative commentator Rush Limbaugh, right? A man who, to put it mildly, is not known for being best. The NFL all too often looks like a game between the Bloods and the Crips. What does that make her? It makes her a slut, right? I love the women's movement, especially with walking behind it. So, nigga with an A on the end. Well, I think I can now. When I hear Chinese or Japanese, it sounds like all the same word. He is moving all around and shaking, and it's purely an act. If any race of people should not have guilt about slavery, it's Caucasians. Yeah. Yeah, Rush, Rush Limbaugh might be racist, sexist, homophobic, and mock people with disabilities, but at least he treats paper with respect. <laughs> so maybe that was Nancy Pelosi's real mistake. It's not that she was disrespectful, it's that she wasn't disrespectful enough. See, maybe if Nancy interrupted Trump's speech with a racist Asian accent and a couple of casual N-words, instead of earning everyone's anger, she would have earned her own Medal of Freedom. <laughs> we'll be right back. for best performance in fake outrage. Jason Chaffetz for Never In My Life. I had never seen anybody act so childish in my life. I... Mike Pence for Dishonored The Moment. To have her stand up and tear up that speech um, really dishonored the moment. Laura Ingram for The Stories. When Pelosi's ripping up the speech, a friend of mine just told me like that, that's Pelosi ripping up the stories of these Americans. And Kellyanne Conway for shredding children. Nancy Pelosi shredding the memory of Kayla Mueller, shredding a little two-year-old. Welcome back to The Daily Show. It's February, which is officially Black History Month. And we're celebrating all month with Roy Wood Jr. honoring the unsung heroes of black history in another episode of CP Time. Ah, welcome to CP Time, the only show that's for the culture. Today, we'll be discussing black explorers. Now, I know when a lot of people think of explorers, they only think of white people, like Christopher Columbus, Lewis and Clark, or that twitchy lady that drives the magic school bus. <laughs> but what many people don't know is that black people have also been instrumental in discovering new lands. They just don't get any of the credit like how I discovered the Dougie, no one gave me credit. 
I was covered in spiders, and I was just trying to get them off me. Our first black explorer is a man by the name of Matthew Henson, the first man to reach the North Pole in 1908. It was an incredible feat, not just because he discovered the North Pole, but also because he was a black man who wasn't afraid of going head to head against winter. The only place I would want to discover is Miami. Party in the city where the heat is on. Another black explorer who doesn't nearly get the credit he deserves was an enslaved man named York. In 1804, he joined Lewis and Clark on their famous expedition across North America, making him the first black man to travel across the U.S. continent. York was a vital part of the expedition. In fact, he was so trusted, he was even given his own gun which was a risky move on Lewis and Clark's part. You're giving a slave a gun. You know what you call a slave with a gun? Master. <laughs> Interesting fact, after the expedition, York requested his freedom from Clark, but Clark denied it because he realized that without York, he would just be another white dude lost in the forest. Like a bitch. <laughs> and finally, Black people weren't just tagging along with white people on these expeditions. They were also making history themselves. Like Abu Bakari II, the ruler of the Mali Empire. In 1311, Abu Bakari set off on an expedition westward. Eventually, he landed in Brazil. Abu Bakari met the native tribes there and made peace with them, and even ended up marrying a chief's daughter a quest that many men know all too well, traveling to distant lands for new booty. <laughs> the local girls are too familiar. So the next time you think about explorers, remember not to just give credit to white men who discovered places people already lived, Columbus, but also give credit to those of the more melanin persuasion who have explored the world, like my uncle Bebo, who in 1990, traveled across the country searching for the Dairy Queen with the best Oreo blizzard. We haven't seen him since. That's why every day, I honor my Uncle Bebo by eating one of these. We gonna miss you, Bebo. And we're... And I'm back. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'm Roy Wood Jr., and this has been CP Time. Remember, before the culture, somebody give me some hot tea to balance out this cold. Where would you and everybody? We'll be right back. My guest tonight is an award-winning reporter for the New York Times Magazine and creator of the 1619 Project, which commemorates the year the first enslaved Africans were brought to the colony of Virginia, and it examines the ways the 400-year legacy of slavery continues to shape America. Please welcome Nicole Hannah-Jones. <laughs> Welcome to The Daily Show. Thank you. 
And congratulations on creating and working with a group of people on a project that has gone on to become more than just a moment, but rather a rethinking of America's history. Let's start with the why behind this. I mean, history seems like it has been written. So why try and write it again? Well, history has been written, but uh, it's been written to tell us a certain story. And uh, the 1619 Project is trying to reframe that story. And it's really about uh, the ongoing legacy of slavery. We've been taught that slavery was a long time ago, mm -hmm. get over it, which is something nearly every black person in this country hears at some mm -hmm. point. And the 1619 Project is really saying that uh, slavery was so foundational to America and its institutions that we are still suffering from that legacy now. And it's exploring the many ways that we, that we still are. It's interesting that you've chosen the year 1619 because many people would say, but this was before America existed. You know, why not start at America's founding and then not include the years before when this was a colony and Virginia and Britain were involved? So why do you choose that point? And why do you argue more importantly that on the 14th, you say on the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully? Yes, so it's funny because this year is also the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower. Yet no one argues that we shouldn't learn about the Mayflower because that predates the United States. We know that that was an important moment. Um, I would argue that the White Lion, which was a ship that arrived a year earlier carrying enslaved Africans, was far more important to the American story uh, than 1620, than the Mayflower. So. No, America hadn't yet formed, but Virginia was the first colony. Our institutions would come out of the 13 colonies, mm -hmm. uh, our legal system, our cultural system, our political system, and certainly the anti-black racism that we still struggle with is born at that moment. When you, when you start off in this magazine, there's a, there's a really beautiful passage in the beginning where you talk about your personal journey and, and how you struggled with your relationship with America as a country. And, and it's a really beautiful tale you tell about growing up um, you know, on the land where so many people had died and toiled as, as enslaved people. You also talk about how your father was a proud American and how you didn't understand how he could be proud to be American when America seemed to be against him in spite of everything that he did. Yes. How, how did you reconcile that or, or did working through this project change your view on, on how to be American or, or how not to be American? Yeah, absolutely working on the project changed my perspective on my father. Um, I opened the piece talking about how my dad, who was born in apartheid Mississippi, mm -hmm. uh, flew this flag in our front yard on this giant flagpole. And he was one of the only black people I knew who flew a flag in their yard. And I was deeply embarrassed by that. Um, but as I started researching for this project, and my essay is really about how black Americans have had this pivotal role of actually turning the United States into a democracy, I got that he understood something that I didn't, that um, no one has a right to take away our citizenship and our rights to think of ourselves as American because so much of what uh, black people have done is what has built this very country that we get to live in today. And what, do you, what do you mean specifically when you say that? Because that, that, was, that was an idea that I don't think I had fully thought about before I read this magazine, was the concept that America's foundation was a lie in that it, it was a group of promises that weren't, that weren't fulfilled, you know, to, to both people of color and to women in many respects. And, and what you argue in this magazine is that black people basically had the job of making it a truth 
What, what, what did you mean by that? Absolutely. So when Thomas Jefferson writes those famous uh, English words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Uh, he owns 130 human beings at that time, including some of his own family members. And he understands that uh, one-fifth of the population will enjoy none of those rights and liberties. So we are founded on a hypocrisy, on a paradox. Mm -hmm. But black people read those words and said, oh, we're going to believe that these words are true and apply to us and fight. Again and again, we see them fighting at the revolution the first person to die uh, for this country was a black na man named Crispus Attucks who wasn't free. We see that happening uh, with the abolitionist movement largely led by black Americans. We see that happening at the Civil War with the Reconstruction Amendments. And of course, the Civil Rights Movement, which brings the franchise to large segments of uh, America for the first time. Right. So we, we said we were founded as a democratic republic, but most Americans could not vote at the time of the Constitution. Uh, but thanks largely to black resistance and freedom struggles, we are as close to a multiracial democracy uh, as we've ever been. It's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful story in that, in that it's told not through the lens of anger, but rather through the lens of collecting stories. You know, it's, it's, it's the facts. I feel it's, it's a, a little story. angry. A little angry? It's a little, oh, a little it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like okay, anger so much as it feels like a truth. <laughs> yeah. You know? what, what, what it has sparked though, is, is a, a fight over history and how the history is told. Yes. You know, once this magazine came out, there were, there were many historians who, who, you know, came after you and said, no, this is, this is incorrect. The primary reason that America sought its independence from Britain was not because they wanted to maintain slavery. It was because of taxation without representation. It, it wasn't the primary cause. Why do you think there's such a resistance to slavery being one of the primary causes of America breaking away from Britain? Because we need to believe as a country that uh, our founding was pure. That yes, you know, we had some troubles, including um, holding 500,000 people in bondage. Mm -hmm. um, but that largely we were a nation founded to be exceptional and these uh, majestic ideas. And that our founders, uh, though complicated men, were men who were righteous. But when you argue um, that our founders were, many of them, very hypocritical and that you can't just simply overlook the mm -hmm. fact that slavery was a motivation in some of the colonies. Yes, taxation was a motivation, but also uh, the ability to keep making a lot of money off of human bondage. Right. That is very unsettling, uh, not just to the average American, but to historians who have seen their job as protecting that founding narrative. The difference is, you know, when you're black in this country, you don't have the luxury of pretending that that history didn't exist. And right. what that history has done is really marginalized our story um, when really the story of black people and slavery is central to the uh, United States. When you, when you worked through this project, there are new pieces of information you discover. There, there are stories that you find were never told that need to be told. And I know you can't write about everything, but I was interested in whether or not you would think that other countries who are involved in slavery get off easier than the United States because the one thing they did differently to America as we know it is that they sort of outsourced slavery. You know, if you think about whether it was the Americas or Spain or many of these other colonial nations, their slaves were in yes. the countries and then they left those countries and were like, we're done with slavery, but they also don't have to deal with the people they enslaved. Whereas America has an interesting relationship where you have to deal with the people because they're still here. So not just, not just not to feel sorry for America, but do you think there's also a reckoning that should happen in this way in Europe maybe? Oh, for sure. All the colonial powers need to have a reckoning. And reckoning also needs to happen on the continent of Africa. But I, I think the fundamental difference, there's two. Yes, uh, slavery occurred in the bounds of the country that would become America. Right. Um, but also of those 
colonial powers, America's the only country that was founded on the idea of individual rights and liberty. Interesting. That was founded on the idea of God-given inalienable rights. Um, none of those other European, I mean, these were monarchies. They weren't founded on the idea that every person had equal rights, but we were. So that hypocrisy really matters. And um, of course, I argue that that hypocrisy is why we have struggled so much to get over and address the issue of slavery, because it forces us to acknowledge this lie at our founding. Before you go, one of the main questions many people may have, and you see this unfortunately all too often, is people saying, why do you have to keep trudging this up? Can't we just move on? It's been 400 years now. Can't we just move on? What do you hope would be sparked by the conversations that come from a magazine that delves into slavery like this? What, what, do, you, what do you want someone who sits at home and says, they go, Nicole, I'm, I'm white and I, I had nothing to do with this and I don't know what you want me to do. What would you hope people take away? Uh, that's a great question. Let me just say, for the record, nobody wants to get over slavery more than black folks. Uh, it is not... <laughs> <laughs> it's not to our benefit, right? So the, the fact that our nation can't get over slavery has not benefited black people for a single day. But that's the problem. We've never dealt with the harm that was done. I'm 43 years old, and my father was born into a Mississippi where Black people couldn't vote. Black people couldn't use public facilities. That was all perfectly legal. We're not far removed from this past at all. And there's never been uh, any effort to redress that harm. So what I hope that people will take from the magazine, every single story in the magazine starts with America today mm -hmm. and shows how these things about American life that you think are unrelated to slavery actually are. And I hope by confronting that truth, maybe we can finally start to repair the harm that was done and then finally uh, start to live up to be the country of our ideals. It's a fantastic job, fantastic magazine. Really wonderful having you on the show. Thank, Thank you so much. To learn more about this beautiful, amazing story, go to newyorktimes.com slash 1619. That's nytimes.com slash 1619. Nicole Hannah-Jones, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.